Welcome to episode number 76 of 100 Plus, an overview of 100 of the most important people, events, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, Western civilization, the Christian faith, and you. This series of lectures is based on the idea that if we back up to the intersection between the Greeks and the Romans, with the Jews and the Christians, and then trace the development of this movement as it unfolds through the Roman Empire, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment, Modernity, and Post-Modernity, we will not only gain a better understanding of the past, we will also gain greater clarity about the present, all of which will allow us to understand what living faithfully for Jesus looks like today. In this lecture, we will be focusing on the Pentecostal and Charismatic Renewal Movements, which, from their humble beginnings in Kansas and California, took the world by storm during the 20th century. As you will see, this Holy Spirit-focused development, which had its roots in the 19th century holiness movement, changed the world. Imagine that you've been teleported back to 1900, and you're walking down the street of some American town, and for some reason, whatever reason, you decide that you want to visit a Pentecostal church. And so you ask somebody, can you point me to the nearest Pentecostal church? They would respond with a quizzical look and then ask you, what is a Pentecostal church? Because in 1900, there were no Pentecostal churches in the United States. For that matter, there were no Pentecostal churches anywhere in the world. Now that would soon change. And uh, the reason that we are focusing on this Pentecostal and Charismatic renewal as, as an episode for this podcast is because during the 20th century, Pentecostalism and then sort of Neo-Pentecostalism, which is the Charismatic movement, explodes. It's not only going to prove to be one of the fastest growing religions, it is also going to become one of the largest Today, there are 600 million Pentecostals and Charismatics, and it is growing rapidly. So the projection is that by 2050, there will be 1 billion. So what, it, what doesn't even exist in 1900 is going to have 1 billion uh, followers in 2050. So today we focus on Pentecostalism and it occurs to me that I should back up and say a few things generally about the Holy Spirit. Now, it might seem odd to you that we have not done that yet, um, but back at the beginning when you might have expected this to happen, uh, when we were talking about some of the foundational uh, aspects of the faith, looking at the early creeds, the focus was pretty exclusively on Jesus. So the Council of Nicaea is all about whether or not... Uh, Jesus is fully God, and then the, the Chalcedonian definition is all about whether being God, he is actually fully human, and uh, you have other uh, derivations around there. There's not really a big church controversy around the Holy Spirit uh, in the early days. The first one we come across, and I didn't really say much about it, was um, the Philoquy Clause, which comes up in, um, in the 6th century. So, uh, philoquy is the Latin word for and the son. And this is something that the Latin church, so the Roman Catholic side, the Western side of the church, 
added to the Apostles' Creed in the 6th century. The question is whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone or whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So in the 6th century, or that's when it sort of became an issue uh, to the East, the East realizes that the West has added the Philoque Clause to the Apostles' Creed. And they had agreed on the Apostles' Creed, uh, or excuse me, they had added to the Nicene Creed. And they had agreed to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Con, uh, Definition. All these things had been agreed upon by the church, by the universal church. And suddenly the Western church has added the Philoque Clause, and the Eastern church says, uh, uh, no, you can't do that. And so this is going to be part of what will lead to the eventual a great schism that, that takes place in 1054. So, all of that to say, there wasn't uh, earlier, there wasn't a big controversy or big issue around the Holy Spirit, and that's why it didn't come up uh, before now. So, let me just make um, seven quick comments generally about the Holy Spirit, and actually six more because I've already made one, and that is that the Holy Spirit uh, is God. Uh, fully God, the third member of the Trinity. Um, God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, they are ontologically equal, uh, even though there is some, I would argue, this is also fighting words here, I guess, but there is, uh, there is subordination, there's functional subordination within the Godhead. They actually all defer to each other. It's the perfect friendship. And the Holy Spirit is always deferring to Jesus uh, and the Father. So we don't, the Holy Spirit is sort of the shy member of the Trinity. We don't hear as much about him. <clears throat> but 1 Corinthians uh, 2 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is all-knowing. Psalm uh, 139 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is everywhere. Hebrews 9.14, we note that the Holy Spirit is eternal. And I could go on. But there's just a lot of attributes uh, of God that are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. So, Point number one, the Holy Spirit is God. Point number two, the Holy Spirit is also a person. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a person like you and I are people. We are merely people. Uh, the Holy Spirit is also uh, God. We were made in God's image and finite. The Spirit of God is God and is infinite. Uh, the point to be made here is the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, the question is not what is the Holy Spirit, but who is the Holy Spirit? He is a he, not an it. Uh, a third thing to note about the Holy Spirit is that he equips the people of God for service. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church through people. And there's several lists in the Bible uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and uh, 1 Peter 4. So these are passages that contain lists of the different kinds of gifts. Apostles, evangelists, teachers, different gifts in leadership or other things. So there are gifts that the Holy Spirit uh, supernaturally enables people to have for the common good. Uh, a fourth thing about the Holy Spirit is that um, his main work is our sanctification. 
excuse me, that's why the Holy Spirit is called holy. Uh, it's because He makes us holy. The Holy Spirit is no more holy than God the Father or God the Son. We don't call them, you know, the Holy Son or the, or the Holy Father. Um, so the Holy Spirit is not holier than God the Father and God the Son, but but part of his main responsibility is our sanctification. Uh, fifth thing is that the Holy Spirit indwells in us, comes to live in us at the time of conversion. When we repent of our sins, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We see this not so much in the book of Acts, which is where a lot of the Pentecostal doctrine of the Holy Spirit is going to be taken, but we see this more in the epistles, um, that um, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I, I emphasize this here a little bit because one of the uh, one of the claims of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements is that there is a second experience and that it's at the second experience that the Holy Spirit comes. And that proof of the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody is that they are speaking in tongues, glossolalia, a foreign language. So uh, I, um, we're not going to dive deep into the theological weeds here, but I would I would, uh, will challenge that and say, no, to be a Christian means the Spirit of God indwells in us and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That leads to the sixth point, uh, and that is that we are to live lives empowered by the Spirit of God. Uh, we're told not to be drunk with wine, for that you know, dilutes us, that is dissipation. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this being filled is a present tense imperative. So it's an ongoing command. We are to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody says we have to keep filling up because we leak. I would be uh, failing in my task here. Uh, as a podcaster, we're looking at history. Uh, that's It's not my day job, right? My day job is as a pastor. And so part of what I'll come back to is this idea that we need to yield our lives to the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled and guided and directed by the Spirit of God. So, um, with that as a backdrop, let's turn back to the 20th century and start in 1901. So the last uh, podcast I did was this big overview uh, of the 20th century, and I uh, just gave you lots of data. By the way, uh, thank you to all of you who wrote to point out the things that I left out in the 20th century. Uh, it is actually helpful. Yes, I left a lot out, uh, but it is truly helpful when people say, hey, why didn't you talk about this? Or why didn't you talk about that? Or you left this out. How in the world could you leave this out? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I look forward to doing these uh, episodes again when I have had a chance to be a little bit more uh, thoughtful and uh, to look at them and have some other people help me uh, improve them. So all the information that you send in, it all goes into the file. I'll look at it before I give this again. But anyway, um, what I want to do here is as we're moving into the 20th century, we're going to pick this up because because the, there's a big kickoff on January 1st, 1901, when sort of Pentecostalism sort of is born. So this is an appropriate first 20th century uh, episode. 
I want to do a little bit, first of all, on the, the theology to help you understand the difference between, say, uh, an evangelical and a Pentecostal, and the difference between a Pentecostal and a charismatic. Um, uh, second, I want to give you more of the historical revival context here, and then uh, I want to go and end on a pastoral note. So, The theology. Let me back up and do this because I don't think I've done justice to this yet. So what is a Pentecostal? Um, and I could just say, for the sake of this podcast, what is a Pentecostal uh, other than this big uh, catalyst for spiritual renewal in the 20th century? Um, what is Pentecostalism perhaps other than the movement that follows the holiness movement coming out of the 19th century, coming out of the Great Awakening, and before the charismatic movement. So I'm going to make distinctions between Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. So it's a, it's, it's hard to do this in part because Pentecostalism, uh, and the charismatic movement are very decentralized and very diverse. And so it's hard to talk specifically like there's a clear doctrine and this is what all Pentecostals believe or this is what all charismatics believe. It's also hard to sort of slice and dice this because uh, you can come at this a little bit theologically, but you can also look at this in different ways. So the first wave of this is sometimes referred to as uh, classic Pentecostalism. This is uh, Assemblies of God. This is Foursquare. This is Church of God in Christ. And this is... Uh, Parnum and uh, Seymour and others. And so there's some, there's some things that are distinct about the first wave of Pentecostalism that's going to come out of Kansas and then also out of California. Uh, and it's going to go for, you know, 25, 30 years. Movements in history, revolutions, you know, uh, big changes, they often have a, a, a catalytic sort of spark to them. And they can have this sort of, uh, they're a brush fire for 10 years, uh, 15 years. And then, uh, you know, the, the revolutionaries, the ones that started it, the ones that lead everybody up the hill, the ones that sort of paved the way, they sort of get pushed aside by the managers and the bean counters and those people that say, you know what? Uh, we could do this a little bit better. Like we could do this and have nine to five office hours if you'd let us put some systems in place. And so you see this. You see the institutionalization of movements. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not always a good thing, uh, but it's a thing. And so you've got the first wave of Pentecostalism, and then it's going to sort of die down. And then you're going to have um, a second wave called Neo-Pentecostalism. And this is more 50s, 60s, Jesus people, that kind of thing. And this is sometimes referred to as uh, the charismatic movement. So the neo-Pentecostals are often referred to as the charismatics. So the Pentecostals are going to be distinct in one sense because they're going to be a little bit more um, tied to the idea that the Holy Spirit comes in a second experience and that that, that is always confirmed by speaking in tongues. So if you have not spoken in tongues, then you do not, you do not have the Holy Spirit. If you have spoken in tongues, you have the Holy Spirit. And 
there's some other uniquenesses to this. Um, there's there's a focus a little bit more on divine healing, and there's there tends to be a lot of energy and effort uh, as it relates to uh, the end of the world. <clears throat> but uh, and and I guess and the other thing is they're they're growing out of the holiness movement. So if you see pictures of early Pentecostal meetings, the people often look like. Uh, they're, they're living in the 19th century. Uh, the women don't have makeup, very simple dress. They're coming out of the Great Awakening. They're coming out of these holiness movements where the, the, the hope and the thought was, <clears throat> I'm going to pray so much. I'm going to study so much. I'm going to try so hard. I'm actually going to become perfect. Okay, so I don't, I, I'm not part of the holiness movement. Uh, the reformers were not part of the holiness movement. There's a, a recognition, I, I think, uh, in Scripture. I would say Paul is not part of the holiness movement if you read Romans 7. So there's a, there is, uh, I think, a little bit of the holiness movement that, that sort of jumps the rails. Comes out of Methodism, a little bit of, uh, uh, a little bit of street revival stuff, a little bit of Wesleyanism and stuff. But it's different than that. When, when John Wesley spoke about Christian perfectionism, it wasn't the same thing that some of the people in the holiness movement will talk about. So they're really thinking, I can be holy. Like, I'm going to get, I'm going to be perfect. Which leads to the old joke, you know, where the, 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 the pastor who's reformed and is arguing that everybody's got sin wants to say, you know, we're not going to be perfect. Is anyone here perfect? If you're perfect, raise your hand. And in the back, this guy raises his hand. I'm probably going to get canceled for this, <laughs> this joke now that I think about it. Oh, well, I'm committed. Um, so, this guy raises his hand, and the guy says, Sir, am I to understand that you think you're perfect? And the guy stands up, and he says, Well, not exactly. He goes, well, you, I said, is anybody here perfect? Raise your hand. And you raised your hand. He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, I'm, I'm raising my hand uh, for my wife's first husband. Okay. Maybe we'll just edit that whole thing out. I don't know. But anyway, so you come out of the holiness movement into first wave classic Pentecostalism. And one of the things in the first wave classic Pentecostalism is that they form their own denominations. Okay. When you get to the, when you get into second wave, uh, uh, neo-Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, now, there's a couple things that are different. First of all, generally charismatics, and at this point, not all Pentecostals, are going to say that you have to speak in tongues in order to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, they also are going to stay in their churches. So, there's going to be a marriage between Pentecostalism, which gets shunned by the mainline as being sort of too extreme and too out there and not theologically literate. A lot of early Pentecostals tended to not have as much education. There's a little bit more emotionalism with all this. And so they, they get shunned a little bit, stiff-armed by the Presbyterians and Episcopalians and, and Roman Catholics and, and whatever. When you get to the second wave, when you come into the charismatic movement of the 70s and 80s, now, you have the marriage of the mainline churches and the evangelical churches and the Pentecostals. And so, you have 
people bringing this idea of the gifts of the Spirit, the sign gifts, to uh, into the church, and they're going to stay there. So more contemporary worship, raising of hands, speaking in tongues, more praying for divine healing, but they remain Episcopalians, or they remain Lutherans, or Presbyterians, or whatever. And they often look very radically different from the holiness movement. So, I mean, you know, I just said the holiness movement leading to first wave Pentecostalism. You've got a lot of women with no makeup. I mean, the, the, the caricature, the quintessential caricature of, of, uh, the 700 club or, you know, that sort of mid eighties, uh, uh, charismatic movement is Tammy Faye Baker and lots of makeup and all of that and the PTL club and all of those things. But, there's not as much focus, sometimes, sometimes there is, but there's not as much focus on needing to speak in tongues in order to, to confirm that you have the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, there's a belief that you have the Holy Spirit at conversion and that it's later that these gifts get manifest. And then you, you'll have a third wave of Pentecostalism, and this is the signs and wonders kinds of things that are going to happen uh, and this is going to lead more into Calvary Church, and it's going to lead into a number of, of other sort of uh, outshoots of the charismatic movement. And then there's some argument as to whether or not you've got uh, a fourth wave of Pentecostalism that's happening. And this would be with a group uh, of Pentecostals who are much more interested in education and uh, theological training. As a general rule, I have friends... Um, Pentecostal friends, for whom getting education was viewed as a bad thing. Like, you did not want to go to college. You certainly did not want to go to seminary. That, that was early on. That's changing over time, and now there's a push. You've got a number of really sort of top-flight uh, theological scholars who are, if not Pentecostal, charismatic, Gordon Fee, uh, J- Jamie K. Smith, uh, some others that identify in that camp. So, uh, part of the challenge of defining Pentecostalism is that it's changed through the years. But let me back up and talk about, again, this distinctiveness out of Acts chapter 2. Pentecost, the word itself, is tied back to Acts chapter 2. And at the first Pentecost, the birth of the church, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on those that are gathered in the upper room. So, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. It was the, the third of uh, the three big holidays. The first was Passover. The last is the Feast of Tabernacles. In between those, 50, that's where you get the word penti, 50 days after Pentecost, people were gathered in Jerusalem. So the disciples and others are gathered in the upper room. They're waiting for, uh, they're waiting for the sign. They're waiting for something. Jesus had told them, uh, to go and to wait. And so this is, the Holy Spirit then comes upon them, you know, descends into the room, they're in this room, comes into the room, uh, there's flames over their head, and they spill out into the street, speaking in languages, foreign languages, that they had not learned. And this is sort of commissioning them for uh, for beginning to grow the church. And several thousand people come to faith that day. So let me read Acts chapter 2 to just put this in context. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of, the, of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. (laughs) Then Peter stood up uh, with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let let me explain this to you. And then Uh, He's going to go on and he is going to preach and thousands are going to come to faith. So, Pentecostals are those who say that uh, Acts 2 is normative. That is, that every Christian should have an experience after their conversion in which uh, they receive the Holy Spirit via a baptism which leads to them speaking in a foreign language. Now, over the years, what kind of language, glossalia is, is, the, is the term, what kind of tongue this is, is debated. I believe the Assemblies of God continues to maintain what the first wave Pentecostals maintained, and that is that what, what they're doing is speaking a human language. Uh, today, from charismatics, generally you hear more that it's a private prayer language or it's a heavenly language or it's a language with angels. Uh, but initially, here in, in the book of Acts, it's clear that this is, uh, this is speaking in a foreign language. And it was for the purpose of growing the church, right? So that people could hear the gospel uh, in their language. So what do Pentecostals believe? Well, um, I've already told you that they believe in this second experience. Um, and I've already told you that they're not a monolithic group. So let me say, the big issue is um, the second experience. That, uh, that everybody should have this kind of Holy Spirit uh, conversion moment. And that it is evidenced by speaking in tongues. There are other things. Personal salvation in Jesus Christ. There's a, an emphasis on the miraculous and on healing, uh, whether that's spiritual healing or physical healing. Remember, the spiritual healing would be to become perfect. This is coming out of the holiness movement. And so, whereas as um, somebody following in the Reformed tradition, looking at um, Luther and Calvin and others, arguing that sanctification, our justification is an instantaneous process, but our sanctification is an ongoing process uh, that doesn't reach its culmination until our glorification after death. Um, there's The Pentecostal would be more, you, know, you could jump ahead. You could you know, have a moment 
in which you are purified and you become holy. And then a, a, a final thing here is the belief in the Lord's um, quick return. And that will become important here in just a minute. So let me note um, that <clears throat> as an evangelical, I, I read the book of Acts more from a descriptive, not a prescriptive sense. And I would say that this is the way it sure looks like the church was reading the book of Acts. That you read about Pentecost uh, and the other times when the Spirit of God sort of falls on people, because um, it happens several other times, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, um, that looking at this, these are things that are describing events that happened. They're not saying this needs to happen to you. So, how would... Uh, how did the church sort of historically explain these events? Like it, you, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on those that were gathered in the upper room, and they manifested that by speaking in a uh, foreign language. And then you've got, you see a similar thing in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, and in Acts chapter 10 with the God-fearers, and Acts chapter 19 with the Gentiles. There are times when people would hear about the Holy Spirit uh, and then people would pray for them, and the Spirit of God would fall on them, and it would, be, it would manifest itself in them speaking in tongues. So I'm, I'm water skiing over a lot of information here, but I'll just simply say, look, um, I think we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in two big epics. We have the book of Genesis up through Pentecost, and then we have Pentecost moving forward. Around Pentecost, I mean, there's a few days or weeks here where different things are happening. So there were people who had come to faith in Christ, who came to faith in Christ before Pentecost. So that would be the disciples. And when Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they speak in tongues. We see that happening then in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are half Jews, half uh, Gentiles. They, some of them were following Christ. They had not heard about the Holy Spirit. And they'll say, we haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. Pray, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They speak in tongues. Part of this is significant because it gets the attention uh, of the Jews saying, oh my goodness, look, God is working in the Samaritans. We never would have believed it. And then in Acts chapter 10 with the god same thing happens. And the Jews are like, look at this. We can't deny this. We cannot withhold baptism from them because surely the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. Acts chapter 19, it's the Gentiles. Again, people who had come to faith in Christ before the Holy Spirit, and now as they hear about it, then they say, we need to receive the Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit. They pray, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. I would argue, I understand, that after that, it doesn't happen that way uh, again. So, now, there are lots of people who have a second experience. Maybe you, who said, I came to faith in Christ, and either uh, nothing happened for a while until this turning point in my life, or I came to faith in Christ, and a whole lot happened, and then I fell away, and then I had an, another experience, and it was a second experience. Or So people will say, there, there have been these pivot points in my life spiritually where everything changed. 
Amen. Yes, <laughs> go for it. And I would simply say, I hope you have, uh, you know, 10 more. Uh, look, the, the Bible, at certain points, we're instructed to things like, don't quench the Spirit. And I would argue, Christians have the Spirit, but we can strangle the Spirit. We can be living carnal lives. We can be, uh, we had be, we can be suppressing through sin or through hardness of heart, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us. And, and then we need to release and allow God's Spirit to move again. So let me jump ahead and talk for a little bit about uh, the history of Pentecostalism. As an aside, let me say, uh, I do not uh, have any of the sign gifts. They're the, the gifts that we see in, in the book of Acts, the lists in Romans and Ephesians and other places. Some people will divide them into... Uh, sign gifts, which are more miraculous, which are more spectacular, and less spectacular gifts. Um, and so it's prophecy and, and speaking in tongues and these things that are, that are the sign gifts. When I came to faith, I was told that the sign gifts had, had ceased. So I'm going to talk, when I talk about Israel, I'll talk a little bit about um, dispensationalism, and not all dispensationalists are cessationists, but there are some who say, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13.10, I believe it says that when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. They would say that that refers to the Bible. When the Bible, when the, the New Testament canon came together, then uh, after that there was no longer any need for these uh, gifts like speaking in tongues. And that we've got the Bible, so we don't need supernatural words of wisdom and prophecy and other things coming from people. And and again, there's something to say. It, it absolutely stopped. So John MacArthur would be in that camp. Um, I'm not in that camp. Uh, I I don't have this. I don't have any of the sign gifts, and I'm not comfortable endorsing everything I see in the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement. There tends to be a lot of health and wealth stuff. There tends to be a lot of misunderstanding of, of, I think, of when the Holy Spirit comes and seals us. There's a lot of things I disagree with. But um, I, I think God's, God has become a little bit more mysterious <laughs> uh, the more I study and the longer I live. So um, I do not come at this look at history and look at the Holy Spirit through Scripture uh, from the vantage point of having all the stuff buttoned up. Um, but... Uh, I'm, I'm not, I would not describe myself as a Pentecostal, uh, be a little bit more in the camp that says, yeah, I think there are, um, there are aspects of, of, of the charismatic movement that I want to applaud and lead into, even as there's some that make me a little bit nervous. But let's put this in historical context. So we're doing this now. This is whatever this is, episode 76. At the start of the 20th century, I think there's 20, episodes of the 20th century. I'm starting it now because there are some specific things that happened uh, in, the, in the very first days of the, of the 20th century, of the 1900s. So um, the, um, the two big names, the first one is Charles Parnum. Now Parnum comes on the scene. Um, he is born um, in the 1800s and he is a uh, he is a pastor. He is uh, in the Methodist Church for a little while. He sort of leaves that. He goes, I think, into one of the holiness movements, like Quakers or something else. And then he goes off on his own. 
and he's holding revivals, and he's calling people to, uh, to sort of fully yield their life and to move towards perf- to become perfect through the Holy Spirit. And uh, he will hold revivals. He travels all over. I think he starts in Iowa. He's in Missouri. And then eventually he's going to be in California. He's in Houston. He's in Topeka. At one point he's in Topeka. And he starts a college where he's training pastors. And uh, one of the pastors that he, that he trains is a guy by the name of William Seymour. And uh, Seymour uh, is, uh, is a younger man. So uh, uh, Par- uh, Parnum is older. Seymour studies with Parnum for a little while. And the reason I'm telling you this is because Seymour is going to be the guy that starts at the Azusa Pacific. Uh, or the Azusa Pacific. My son went to Azusa Pacific. Azusa uh, Revival. Uh, Azusa Street Revival. So Seymour's the guy that does that, and it it happens on um, on January first, nineteen o one. And so there's a lot of people that say this is the absolute start of it. No, there was there was precedent. Parnum is coming out of the Great Awakening. Again, we see some of the some of the descriptions of, of the first and more maybe the second Great Awakening. Some of the things that, that John Edwards will write about. Uh, in the Great Awakening, just sounds very much like some Pentecostal meetings. So you got that drifting down. Parnum picks it up. He, holds, he opens this Bible college. He's teaching. Seymour's one of his students. Uh, they go down to some other in Houston, uh, and maybe it's he's teaching in, in uh, Topeka. Then he goes down and he opens another Bible college in Houston. And in Houston, he picks up the student, Seymour. Seymour is black. Uh, Jim Crow laws are in place. Seymour cannot enroll in the college that uh, Parnum has. But Parnum has him sit outside of uh, the, the classroom door, uh, and he, he really takes this guy. Now, Parnum is a, let me just be clear, you read about Parnum. Parnum is a white supremacist. He is kind, he's, he's going to have, he is going to uh, pastor multi-ethnic congregations. He's going to give leadership uh, to Seymour and to other blacks and, and Hispanics. But he does it very much from a privileged position. He has some really weird views that the uh, whites are the, are the recipients of all the promises of God to Israel. Uh, so I, 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 need to, I need to sort of underline that Parnum's, we got problems with Parnum, but he's a man of his times. And he recognizes in Seymour, uh, this guy that he likes, and Seymour is preaching. They would preach together, Parnum and Seymour, out in open-air meetings and other things. There's a woman from California, and she hears Seymour preach. She goes back to her church in Los Angeles, and she says, we, got, you know, we need a pastor. I, I met the guy. It's this guy, William Seymour. So they call Seymour. Seymour goes out to this church. It's a holiness church. He preaches there once, and they say, you're too crazy for us. And so they don't want him. They, they, they lock the door. You can't preach here. So he starts to preach in a Bible study in a house. And the house begins, people start to flock in. And there's stories that, you know, hundreds of people are trying to get in and they can't get in. Eventually, they move to this church on Azusa Street. And Seymour starts to preach there. And it's a church, blacks and whites, Hispanics and others, multi, multi-ethnic church. Seymour's in charge. And the church explodes, and they will have uh, 
prayer meetings. Now, for a while, Seymour does not have. So <laughs> here's an irony. Seymour does not speak in tongues. He's told that you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. He buys into what Parnum is teaching about uh, the book of Acts and other things. But although he doesn't have this, he believes it. He goes out here. On January 1st, 1901, there's a woman, Agnes Osman, I believe is her name. And she, uh, at a meeting in which Seymour is, is preaching, she is filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak in tongues. It's a few weeks later, I think, that Seymour begins to speak in tongues. The numbers grow. The Azusa Street Revival will be the sort of ground zero in the way many people tell the story of Pentecostalism. It will spread. They will have meetings every day for three years. People will come from all over the world to go to Azusa Street, to the prayer meetings, to the worship times. They will then take back the teaching. Parnum is going to have a falling out because of some of his weird views. There's uh, going to be a lot of persecution of the Azusa Street revival. Some of it uh, clearly is because of, um, because of the views, the theological views and the things that they're saying and teaching. Some of it almost certainly is because of racism against Seymour. But this will be a big movement for about three years. And it's from that that you get classic Pentecostalism, first wave Pentecostalism, that is going to spread. Okay, a few more things here um, that I've scribbled down to just uh, make sure you got the flavor of things. It's worth pausing, and maybe you already have, and said, okay, so we've got a report about uh, speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, and then we've got some uh, discussion about this in the, during the Great Awakening. Right? We're jumping to the 17th century. And now you're talking about the 20th century. What, what about all the rest of the time? Like what, what do Pentecostals say? Like why wasn't there this kind of activity happening, um, you know, in the 15, 1600 years between the Book of Acts and the Great Awakening? Well, uh, there's a few things that they would say. First of all, uh, and I want to be very careful here because I think it's changing, but there's, there was not a, my experience in interacting with Pentecostals is there's not a lot of concern about history. Again, it's not been, um, it's not been the group that has been the, as, as rigorously grounded in, you know, history or academics or something like that. Secondly, what they would say is, like, look, we're Bible people and this is in the Bible and uh, it needs to happen. And uh, furthermore, they'd say, well, you know, we're, there's some that would, it, it, it's not meant to be a pejorative term, but I think it comes across that way that they're Christian primitivists. They go, yeah, we're first century Christians. Like, we're just going back to what, you know, what the Word of God says, and this is the way it's described. What some Pentecostals say, what, what first classical, first wave Pentecostalism said is, we're living in the last days. And so there isn't time for people to learn a new language, a foreign language as, as missionaries. Part of the reason the Pentecostal movement is growing so rapidly, and I just want to say, again, <laughs> I mean, in 1900, there were none, and, and today there's 600 million. Uh, part of the reason that it grew was because um, there is a zeal, there is an energy around sharing the gospel. And... Um, 
there were, uh, the, the, the call was, okay, you have this foreign language gift. You need to go. And where are you going to go? Now, this, this did tend to, as you might imagine, not work, uh, very well when they went and people couldn't understand them. And, and the, the, the church said, you know what? We don't really know what God's doing here. We don't know what language you're speaking. Um, and they then were more engaged in classic mission preparation, which you got to learn a foreign language. But they said, it's a new time. This is a new moment. And so God is pouring out his Holy Spirit here at the end uh, because of that. So um, let me just say a, a couple of final things here by way of um, sort of a pastoral coda on this. Um, I, I'm not a Pentecostal. Uh, Pentecostalism, almost all Pentecostals, uh, fall within Apostles' Creed Christianity. There is a, a one holiness movement or one Pentecostal, one Pentecostal, uh, United Pentecostal, something like that, that doesn't affirm the Trinity. So they're modalists. And T.D. Jakes comes out of this denomination, so occasionally he's sort of called into question, is he, uh, is he advocating classic uh, Apostles' Creed Christianity. Uh, so I've heard people say 10% of Pentecostals are in this one Pentecostalism, and it's that's a problem. Yeah, the Trinity, because the Trinity is ultimately, uh, I think it's, one, it's biblical, and two, it, the fights about the Trinity tend to be fights about whether or not Jesus is fully God and other things. So that's significant. I'm not a Pentecostal for the most part. Uh, while I disagree with some of their application of understanding of Acts 2 or their application of some things, um, I don't get too worried about that. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of Christians who treat the Holy Spirit uh, as a forgotten member of the Godhead or they treat the ministry of the Holy Spirit as sort of nuclear energy. They don't want to get too close to it. They don't really understand it. It's too powerful and it might overwhelm them. Um, I want to encourage you to live a life that is yielded to the Spirit of God. I think there are things that we can learn from uh, Pentecostal's charismatic movement uh, in terms of an intimacy that comes by yielding our life to Christ. Not sheer emotionalism, uh, not at all, but um, uh, I do think that God's Spirit can guide and direct us and that we need to not quench the Spirit and allow Him to guide us. Next up. Uh, the plan will be to move towards uh, looking at the fundamentalist controversy in the early 20th century. By the way, uh, I will be taking July off. Uh, I am, I've got to finish a book uh, for the fall. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm working. I mean, this is not a sabbatical. Uh, I'm going to be visiting all the campuses. I've got a, a bunch of stuff I need to do, but the podcast again suffers. Um, I will be working on this. Uh, I am committed, God willing, to, to finish this and then to make it better. But uh, the next podcast will not be next week. Uh, and I will get back to you with the fundamentalist controversy and what we can learn from them next time.